from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to our annual holiday episode of the Cry Havoc Podcast. On December 17th, the Cry Havoc community gathered for our annual holiday event, where we invited our audience to join us for an evening of holiday goodies and readings from this year's annual collection of very short holiday plays. Like every year, each of our playwrights was given an assignment. Each of the very short holiday plays was to be no longer than five pages, to take place during the holiday season, to feature at least one character from a play that they or another playwright developed in the workshop, and to be inspired by a randomly assigned song. As an additional challenge, this year each of the inspiration songs had a year in the title, and that year needed to play some important role in the play. What follows is a live reading of five of these plays, each followed by a selection from the song that inspired it and a few words from the playwright about how the play came to be. So, sit back and enjoy. Happy holidays from all of us at Cry Havoc, and we will now join the event with the first of our very short holiday plays, Still Trying by Caitlin Wilcox, inspired by the song The Year 2525, as performed by Zager and Evans, and featuring the character Clara from her play, Empty Handed. Lights up on the living room of a small suburban home. Clara and Lucas, a married couple in their late 30s, enter through the front door, taking off coats, hanging up scarves, etc., revealing party attire underneath. I'm exhausted, I'm going to bed. She gives him a peck on the cheek and starts to leave. Love you. Claire, are we going to talk about this? She stops, but doesn't turn back around. Your toast? She faces him. I just wished everyone a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. And then drained a full glass of wine. One glass of wine isn't going to do anything. (laughs) I know, I just thought we decided we weren't going to have any while we're trying. Well, I undecided. (laughs) Claire, we've been trying for a year Why wouldn't you want to keep doing anything that might help Especially like something like that Because Lucas, it makes me feel pathetic Okay Not drinking is something a pregnant person does Or someone who might be pregnant Not someone who's been trying for a year And is still crossing their fingers And pretty please hoping that it still might happen For a year now, I've been ordering Diet Cokes whenever I'm out with friends, and I can't face their sad looks anymore. Every time I don't have a drink, it's this depressing reminder that I'm still trying to get pregnant, but I'm still not. You might be. That's the point. You never know. I got my period this afternoon. Oh. Merry Christmas and very happy New Year. (laughs) You know, there was a time when I didn't want to have a kid. Maybe you don't really get to change your mind about that. Clara, don't talk like that. I know it's frustrating. I'm frustrated too. That's why I think it's time to start considering other options. Lucas. I I, I know you don't love the idea of IVF. No, I do not. Can we just talk about it? We have talked about it. I I know we, we, we talked about we'll cross that bridge when we come to it kind of way, but we're at the bridge. Okay. It's too expensive. The side effects are a nightmare. It's emotionally grueling, and at my age, there's a two-thirds likelihood it won't even work. I know it's less than ideal, but it's where we're at. I do not want a science fiction test tube baby, okay? It makes me feel creepy. Fifty years ago, IVF was science fiction. What are we going to do in another 50 years? In 500 years, just picking babies out of catalogs? No, I don't want that. Clara, it's still our egg. It's our sperm. It's our baby. Lots of people do IVF. It's not some crazy experimental thing. I know that, and that is fine for them. 
but not for me. But why not? Because I don't want all this, all that effort and expense. But I think it's worth taking the chance. I don't. Okay. I mean, I get it. It's your body. Like, I, I, I know it has, uh, it affects you more than me. If you won't consider IVF, what about starting to look into adoption? It's even more expensive. We've been saving. Our savings were supposed to go toward finally getting a car so you don't have to spend two hours on the commuter rail to get to work every morning. So you'd rather have a car than a kid? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? You don't want kids anymore? Not if you have to sacrifice so much. Me? I thought you were the one who didn't. I don't think of it as a sacrifice. But you should. I'm the one who can't get pregnant. Clara, the specialist said there's nothing physically wrong with either of us. This isn't your fault. Look, Lucas, if you want a baby that bad, maybe you should just go find someone else. You know, someone who can give you one. Because the only reason I want a baby so bad is because I want to have it with you. Maybe you shouldn't. Because I had my chance to have a baby and I didn't take it. And now I'm paying for that, but you shouldn't have to pay for it too. There was a time when you, when you didn't want to have a kid. It was before you, obviously. It was with Joseph. But it was after we broke up and I knew it was over and I knew I didn't want to have this baby and I don't regret it, but now it's like the universe telling me I had my chance and I blew it. Did you tell them? Clara shakes her head. Well, I wish you would have told me. It's not like there's a great time to tell your boyfriend you've had an abortion. So you don't tell him and then your boyfriend becomes your fiancé, becomes your husband, and it just, it seems easier to keep not telling him. Clara, huh, hon, nothing about not telling me seems to, seems like it's been easier for you. Clara crumples onto the couch. Lucas sits and puts an arm around her. Lucas, I want us to have a family. But I can't help feeling like maybe this is the universe's or, or biologies or our bank accounts way of saying I don't deserve one. Clara, you said yourself you don't regret what you did. It was the right thing to do. And it doesn't somehow disqualify you from being a good mother. But then why can't I get pregnant? Did you tell the specialist about it? She nods. Okay. And she said there's no medical reason why we aren't getting pregnant. Yeah, but what if there's like some like small and invisible and, and the test just didn't catch it? So we'll redo the tests. And if something does show up, then we'll figure it out together. After a moment, she reaches out and takes his hand. At the party tonight, I just kept staring at Kim and Jaden's nativity set. I mean, this time of year, it's just this inescapable cultural assault all derived from the story of a baby being born. And I just, well, it just kind of got to me. Hey, I was always into the more secular side of the season. Santa, Rudolph, cookies. gives him a small smile. So why don't we just put on some napkin coal Open a bottle of wine and take a look at the pamphlet Dr. Jenkins gave us on science fiction test tube babies. <laughs> Clara shakes her head. We decided we weren't going to drink while we were trying. He smiles. They leave arm in arm. Lights fade. End of play. <laughs> And that was inspired by in the year 2525. <laughs> it sounds like this. In the
to incorporate the year in the play in some way it was very challenging for me. This was the only year in the pool, it was a future year, uh, where nothing has happened yet. Um, and so one of the lyrics in the song is about how like, you won't have any husbands and wives anymore because babies will just be grown in test tubes. Um, which, at the time the song came out, which was like the late 60s, um, probably did seem like science fiction. And the, uh, I looked up when the first IVF baby was actually born, and it was like 1979, which was, um, I guess, a little later than I thought. Um, but that got me thinking about how you know reproductive uh, technology has grown and, and how um, how things that are possible now must have seemed so impossible so recently. So I started thinking about um, IVF and I have some friends who have gone through the IVF process and it's really difficult and I thought about this character that I'd written about a couple of years ago who at the end of the play that year it's pretty clear that she's decided to have an abortion and I was like what would happen if she then decided, you know, met someone else, got married to someone else, and decided they wanted to have kids but were having trouble, which is so common these days. And if she's kind of blaming herself for this secret, she's never told him, how would that play out? So, All right. All right, so next up, uh, we have Caitlin Wilcox uh, and Kevin Fritz uh, reading... Uh, it's the Real Thing by Jennifer Reichert, inspired by the song 1916, as performed by Motorhead, and featuring the character Madison from her play Just Julie. 10.10 p.m., Friday night, a suburban living room. Beth, early 40s, luminescent but tired, sits by a white Christmas tree bedecked with bottle green ornaments, watching the snow fall by the light of the tree and nursing a generous glass of wine. A large stuffed animal lays face down on the couch beside her. Madison, 16, athletic and confident, enters wearing a parka with a sequined dress swishing out the bottom. She slips from her snow boots and climbs the stairs on cat feet, disappearing upstairs. From above, sounds of opening drawers get louder. Beth shoves her hand into the back of the stuffed animal and pulls out a mini candy bar. She unwraps it and pops it in her mouth. Upstairs, a soft tapping. A door opens, then closes moments later. Madison reemerges on the stairs. Mom, where are you? Mama, down here. I can't find my wallet. We're meeting up at Perkins. Why didn't you take it when you went to snow coming? Madison holds up a teeny silver purse. Beth nods towards a giant wallet on the end table. Madison rushes over and snatches it up. Rifling through it, she pulls out some cash and stuffs it in her purse. It's snowing pretty hard. The sidewalk is covered again. I know. Are you eating my candy? I'm collecting taxes. <laughs> this is from Halloween. You need to make room for the stocking candy. Madison turns the wallet upside down and shakes it. Beth pulls a license from her pajama pocket. Is this what you're looking for? Madison's hand snatches her, but Beth is faster, holding it out of reach. Uh-uh-uh, young lady. Madison keeps trying to grab mm. the license. Beth stands up on the couch and holds it over her head. Oh no, you are not getting this back. What? Why? Beth holds the license in Madison's face and points to the birth date. Madison rocks back on her heels. That? Why does your license say you are 18, Madison Ann? Well? I don't know. <laughs> you BS me. I've been waiting for you to get back and wondering what on earth possessed you to alter your, your license by just two years what could it be, I'm wondering? Are you smoking? No, Mom. I don't smoke. I'm an athlete. Well, good. Well, then what? I know you aren't trying to vote. <laughs> and I am sure that they would not let you donate blood or enlist with this crappy chalk and tape job. And some things are too scary to think about. Buying cigarettes just made the most sense, but... Is it spray paint? Fireworks? Is it a tattoo? Do you want a tattoo? What are you talking about? I googled it. I've been sitting here for three hours trying to figure out why you needed to be 18 but not 21. So I looked up what you can do when you're 18. <laughs> it don't make any sense, Madison, so tell me now. I can't. Oh, you better. It's no big deal. I, I promise. It's a surprise. Oh, no, it isn't. It's for Christmas. 
You doctored your ID for Christmas. For Christmas? Yes. <laughs> for what for Christmas? Please, I can't say. Maddie, you explain yourself now or you are never going anywhere again. Madison wilts a little, thinking. I needed money for presents for everybody. Beth schlumps onto the couch. Oh, sweet lord, is this stripping? It was stripping. What did I do? What? No! How? I pawned my iPod. How could you think you that I... what? I pawned my iPod. You have to be 18 to pawn things. You sold your iPod? No, I didn't sell it. I pawned it. The iPod your dad gave you? You gave it away? He wanted you to have that. I know. But I'll get it back as soon as I have You them. don't know that. What if they get robbed? If you needed money, you could ask me. I couldn't ask you. I was almost done shopping, and I found this perfect gift, and I had already spent what I had for my other gifts, and I just needed more than I had left. What about your father? If you can't ask me, you could ask him. I couldn't wait for that. There was only one. I didn't want someone else to buy it. It's just for now. Once I get my Christmas money from Grandma and Nana, I'll get it back. You'll get it back tonight. I presume this pawn shop is a 24-hour operation? Beth goes to the hall closet and starts putting on a coat and boots over her pajamas. I guess, but I'll have the money to get it back next week. That money is a Christmas gift for you, for your season pass and new boots. Not for you to buy gifts for your friends. You're not going to go boarding with them this year? I'm going to save up my allowance for some day passes as I go. Or Dana can spot me. No. <laughs> we don't owe other people. We don't buy what we can't afford. We earn money, then we save it up, and then we buy. I told you, you never know where your life is going to take you. If your dad and I hadn't owed so much when we ended things, we wouldn't have had to move here. Having debt ties you up and takes away your choices. You have to be responsible and think ahead. I'm sure it was a sweet thought, but you go get what you bought. We're returning it and getting your iPod back. No, Mom. I can't. It's so perfect. It doesn't matter. Go get it. The store isn't even open now, and I don't have the money yet. Madison digs in her purse for the cash she shoved in. I only have $18, so I can't get it. I will give Mr. Pawn Shop the money and a piece of my mind, and you will give me the gift to hold and return for tomorrow. Oh, that ruins Christmas. What's so wrong about pawning things? What's the big deal? Well, for starters, possession of a fake ID is a misdemeanor. And for second of all, and for worse, Madison, you use it to get a loan for something you couldn't <coughs> afford. So go get it. Madison goes to the Christmas tree and delicately picks up a shiny red-wrapped gift from beneath it. Okay, give it here. No! It will ruin Christmas. Let me take back a different one. Would it be enough to get back the iPod? Almost. Beth walks over to her with her hand outstretched. Madison snatches off the tag and shoves it in her coat pocket and clutches the gift to her chest. Beth fishes the tag out of her pocket, leaving it. To Mom. Madison. Please, Mom. I know if you knew what it was, you would understand. Maybe you could open it early. No, Maddie. I don't need an expensive present. You can get me something else. I swear I will love anything you get me. Whatever this is can wait another year. What if it can't, though? Please open it. Put your boots on. Let's go. Please don't make this harder. Madison quickly unwraps the gifts and looks, and looks out. An old Coke bottle. Beth cocks her head. That's a 1916? The original contour bottle? It's the last one you were missing. It's the real thing. Beth looks up at the ceiling and then back at the old bottle. Look at the green. It's how I saw it on the back of the thrift store shelf. I love that color. Madison holds the vintage bottle against the Christmas lights, but Beth looks at Madison, eyes full. Please don't make me give it back. You told me when you and Dad got divorced. You told me I should never delay happiness till tomorrow. 
to always seize my chances for the life I want, even if it hurts in the moment or is inconvenient, that we can't afford to wait for a better moment. I looked for the 1916 with you for years. I found it. It was right in front of me. So I grabbed it. I want to give this to you more than anything. You deserve it. Beth shakes her head and walks over to grab a purse. Please. You can keep all of my allowance. This is what I was most looking forward to for Christmas, is watching you put the bottle up in the space you left for it. Beth pulls her wallet out of her purse. You don't borrow money, Madison. But I can put you on retainer. I need a good, strong young person to shovel the driveway and the sidewalk. I'd be willing to pay 100 a month in advance for someone to be on call anytime it snows. I can do that. I'm your girl. <laughs> Madison sets the bottle down and stomps into her boots. Beth counts out $100. Where's the shovel? Snow can wait till tomorrow. We're getting your iPod now. Beth hands Madison the money and opens the door for her. Madison kisses her cheek. Thank you, Mama. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Maddie. Scoop. Madison scurries outside and Beth follows into the heavy snowfall, closing the door. End of play. And that was inspired by 1916 by Motorhead. Inspired by the song 1953, is performed by the National Parks and featuring the character Craig from his play All Over Me, How Does It Feel? The Living Room. Small town Minnesota. Post war American middle class furnishings and Christmas decorations. The Christmas tree with flower garland hanging cross, a hula figure on top, and a grass skirt on the bottom. Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters' version of Melakaliki Maka plays on the <laughs> Gloria, late 70s, sits in her chair next to the couch, drinking an eggnog Mai Tai. Anthony, 80, does a little hula dance as the song finishes. Gloria applauds. Anthony removes the 45 RPM single from the record player and places it in a sleeve. Anthony dances over to Gloria. He reaches for the glass in her hand. 
Gloria places her other hand on top of his. Wait. He stops. I don't want you to leave. I'm not going anywhere. Just to the kitchen. But when I don't see you, I fall apart. I'll be right back. Seriously? Seriously, seriously. <laughs> and then he kisses the top of her head. He heads to the kitchen with the empty glass. Gloria reaches under the cushion of her chair and produces a slightly smushed roll of paper tied up with a ribbon. She places it in her lap. Anthony re-enters with a box of cookies. Gloria extends her paper roll to him. What's this? It's Christmas Eve. And you're flying me to Hawaii. I got you something in return. My only present is your presence. And maybe a few coconut macaroons. Anthony shakes the box enticingly. I don't want any. But they're your favorite. True shoe coconut macaroons. How can they be? I've never had them before. Will you please open up my gift? I think you've had these before. You recognize the box they came in, don't you? Anthony holds the box toward Gloria. She isn't interested. No, this is important. I want you to have it. Gloria holds out her rolled paper gift. Anthony looks at it. He puts the cookie box down. I'm glad to be back, Gloria. I miss you. Then open it. Anthony takes the smushed paper gift. Are you sure you don't want a cookie? Anthony! <laughs> All right. He undoes the ribbon and unrolls the paper, revealing a very detail-oriented but shakily drawn picture of a palm tree growing on a deserted island. He looks at it. Anthony, I'm so glad you're here. I was worried about you while you were away. But I'm all right, Gloria. I, I'm here now. You see me, right? I'm so glad to see you. All I wanted was to see you, and I couldn't, and I thought I might never see you again, so I drew this. Anthony looks at the picture. It's our own private island. It's a place we'll always be together, even when we're apart. So now you'll always have it. If you have to go away again, just open it up and know that I'm there. You can see me, and I can see you. Gloria, thank you. I want you to know I'm with you. I know 1953 has been hard, but 1954 will be different. <laughs> Anthony looks at the picture. He kisses the top of Gloria's head. Gloria, I have something for you, too. Don't go. I'll be right back. Seriously? Seriously, seriously. He exits. Gloria looks at her drawing. Anthony returns, holding a picture frame. He hands it to her. She turns it over, revealing a similar, very detail-oriented, but not at all shakily drawn picture of a palm tree on a deserted island. You drew this for me? No. You drew it for me. In 1953. It hangs in our hallway over there. Gloria extends the frame toward Andrew. You're already taking me to Hawaii. I can't accept another gift. Gloria, we aren't flying to Hawaii. We already went. Quite a few years ago. Do you remember? We're not going? We can't. Do you have to go back to Korea? Gloria, I need you to understand. It isn't 1953. 1953 was a long time ago. But you just got back. Yes, I just got back. But I wasn't in, the, in Korea, Gloria. I was in the hospital. Korea was a long time ago. I had to go away to the doctor, but I'm back now. 
I'm glad you're back. When I don't see you, I fall apart. Do you remember drawing this picture before? No. Do you remember the last time I had to leave for a little while? You did it then too. And Craig is getting worried. He thinks it's time for us to move. Who? Craig, our son. He's worried. He wants to be sure we're safe. He's worried about me too. Do you remember? He came to see us a few weeks ago. Craig? Anthony picks up the box of cookies and hands it to Gloria. Craig brought the cookies for us. He makes cookies. He makes a lot of cookies. <laughs> the kind you buy in the grocery store. See this? Savory, steadfast, true chews. Coconut macaroons. Your favorite. He makes these. You do recognize the box, don't you? Gloria holds the box, turning it over in her hands. She stares at the back of the box. That's his photograph on the back. Craig. This is Craig. Yes, you remember. I do. When I see him, I need to see him. I forget when I don't see him. Gloria holds on to the box. You're going to see him. He's going to come back tomorrow. And he's going to help us move somewhere new. We're going to move tomorrow? Yes. On Christmas Day? What about dinner? Gloria. <clears throat> Tomorrow's March 7th. It isn't Christmas? Anthony reaches into his pocket. He produces a slim, shiny wraps gift. No. But I did get you a gift. What is it? A way we can see anything we want. Or any woman. You can see Craig. You can see me. And I can see you. Anthony sends the shiny gift to Gloria. She takes it. Seriously? Seriously, seriously. The gift box in Gloria's hand beeps. It's the unmistakable tone of an iPhone activating Siri. <laughs> she drops it on the floor with a start. They both look at Anthony's gift. What is that? Our own private island. Even if I'm not there, you can look at it and see me. And I can see you. I need to see you. When I don't see you, I fall apart. So do I. The shiny gift beeps. Anthony and Gloria look at each other. End of play. All right. And that was inspired by 1953 by the National Parks. I found you in the summer heat. Of 1953 The wise words from your father said I know that boy's your brother's friend But I don't think he keeps coming round for him Again and again and again I had to swim away Semper Fi, but I'll be back someday I'll take you by the hand and say, be mine, be mine, be mine. Jersey. So this year I was I did a little different, something different because I just I wanted I liked the song so much because the sound of the song was this um, uh, singer wrote wrote it for his grandparents about their courtship and uh, the idea that. I could always meet you, I'll always go to meet you in 1953 is about 
it's just the dynamic of the play. Um, so I started there, and I didn't know what the character would be from the Cryhavid play or anything. Um, and uh, there was a lot of things I wanted to include from the song and stuff. Um, and I was obsessed with this like oh, uh, island thing, and uh, and I really wanted to end with the phone beeping. And I uh, so so I think wrangling all of those ideas into one thing that was four and a half pages long was. Um, the phone became the special island, and uh, oh, and I, I found this um, old vintage photograph, and it said "Isle of You" on the back, and I was looking at it, and I was like, "Oh, I love you." It was like a secret <laughs> message from courtship, you know, and uh, and I thought, "Oh, that's that feels like a sweet thing to include," and then that, I just made it into the island thing. Um, and then I put the cookie guy in there because <laughs> I needed to include it. So, but then the cookies became uh, this idea that he had um, in another holiday play, Craig, who doesn't appear in the play, but it's the guy in the cookie box. He talks about his mother, how he wanted to base the company around the image of his mother, but he couldn't. Um, so I thought this, that could be a nice way in to that. Hmm. That she couldn't be the spokesperson for this cookie company that he made with this elderly lady. And maybe that's why. All right. Uh, next up, we have Endeavor by Caven Hallman uh, with John Brunner, Belle Stockdale, Maylisa Briner Sanders, and Jersey Gwizdowski, inspired by the song 2002, as performed by Anne Marie, and featuring the character Liam from his play, Nightwatch. California Science Center. The space shuttle Endeavor sits center stage. It is massive. It is a space shuttle. <laughs> a little kid, eight, in an aggressively Christmassy sweater runs through. This is appropriate as it is Christmas Eve. The kid looks around. A pseudo-jazzy instrumental jingle, including rhythmic sleigh bells, plays its brief tune. Think the NBC call letters, but longer and more annoying. The Science Center will be closing in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. The gift shop will remain open until 5.30. Have a happy holidays from the California Science Center. The jingle plays after the announcement, too. Mom? Mom? The kid runs off. Liam, 38, and Allie, 37, enter hand in hand. They stare at the shuttle in awe. Wow. It's even more wow than I expected. It's a perfect Christmas. Wow. I've never seen one this close. Well, not quite perfect. California is weird in the winter. So is Florida. Yeah, I'm used to it there. Their attention turns again to the shuttle. It still inspires awe. Guess I've never seen one this close either. It's not like when I was growing up, every kid in Brevard County got to just walk up and touch a space shuttle. They should. <laughs> we don't get to have opinions about kids since we don't have them. The kid runs off, screaming, Mommy! The kid runs off. <laughs> I gotta steal one. The kid? Not that one. Wow. <laughs> You're special. You are. <laughs> you are. And this shuttle, this shuttle is special. It's the thing that brought us together. That's a pretty strange thing to claim. The shuttle's the thing that brought us here, but we've been together for 60 years, and actually, the rental car brought us here. You're very clever, but... The yeah. kid runs on, looks around, and just yells. The kid runs off. <laughs> I keep losing my train of thought. Uh, my mom came to work on this, on Endeavor, summer of 02. Okay, you don't have to tell me. I was there. I knew you were special. <laughs> You're being weird. No. No. <laughs> Super stressed? <laughs> no. Jazzy jingle time. The Science Center will be closing in 10 minutes. 10 minutes! 
The gift shop will remain open until 5.30. Announcement over. The jazzy jingle plays again. I hate your damn music. <laughs> I'm sorry. This wasn't um, exactly... I think I should just do it. Gets down on one knee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do this. What? What? I thought you wanted to get engaged. On Christmas Eve. Like, a present. I did, five years ago. I wasn't ready then. <laughs> I know, and, and I'm okay with that. I, I really am. Ultimatums aren't my thing. Oh, I get that. <laughs> You've said that you're okay. I am. Then why okay, I don't want to be reminded of disappointment. It, it was a big disappointment because you said you were going to do it, and I wanted to be married, and I was disappointed for a long time. I, I thought it was going to happen, Liam, and a long stretch. We've been together, and I'm fine with it, really. But I don't want to have to think of that very, very hard time whenever I think about getting engaged. Do you understand that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then you messed it up even more by, like, just repeating the thing that I asked for, but not doing it when I asked for it. You could have done something original. The space shuttle! Were we the thing that brought me to you? <laughs> Your mom brought you to Florida. Uh, I wasn't going to propose to you in front of my mom. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just please do something different. Not for Christmas. It's not a present for me. It's a thing for us. It should be for us. Don't just do what you think I want. I didn't do the exact same thing. I took it to another level. <laughs> the shuttle. <laughs> it's not just the same thing. I can see that. You took it to another level. Long pause as they look at the shuttle. I'll propose next month. Okay. <laughs> It'll blow your mind. <laughs> I believe you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It seemed like you were saying, like it felt, it felt like you were implied maybe that you're interested in a kid, kids. That's that's new. I think it's cool. Okay, just slow down. <laughs> Do your proposal sometime. Then we'll see what happens. Allie and Liam happily turn their gazes back to the shuttle, and after a quiet, contented breath, the jazzy jingle begins again. End of play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that was inspired by 2002 by Anne Marie. I will always remember. The day you kissed my lips lies a fair And it went just like this, no, it's never been better Than the summer of 2002 All right. Now, Kevin is not with us this evening because he now lives in Iowa. But he did send the following uh, yes. thoughts on, uh, on, on this. So he said, uh, I knew I wanted to make a companion piece to Night Watch, because that's the play I've been thinking about most lately. Night Watch is a memory play that follows a single mother as she wrestles with her recollections of growing up in an abusive home in Florida at the dawn of the space program. The inspiration song I was assigned, 2002, takes place quite a bit after that play's timeline. Jumping forward so much, it made sense that the story would be about the child who bookends the original piece because his parents' story has already been told. That's how I ended up connecting the dots between the past and present work. Corey Depp. So, next up we have No One I Think Is In My Tree by Jenny Curlin and Kit Lavoy, uh, with Jersey Gwizdowski, Caitlin Wilcox, Annalisa Chamberlain, Nicholas Chan, John Brunner, Matt Cowart, Mike Points, and Jerry Tobin. 
this is the tenth installment in the Christmas Pigeon Saga, and it is inspired by the song 1980s horror film as performed by Wallows and featuring the characters Plume and Dubby from their screenplay Pigeons and even Denny from their screenplay Squab's First Christmas. Exterior, American Museum of Natural History, Day. Snow falls gently on the American Museum of Natural History. Interior, American Museum of Natural History, Continuous. Inside, the Birds of North America diorama. Plume, a plump pigeon, flaps in through an open tile in the ceiling. He lands excitedly on a branch between a stuffed belted kingfisher and a seaside sparrow. Are you ready? Nearby, Dovey, a beautifully colored ornate fruit dove, fusses with her feathers. Almost. You look great. And I'm almost ready. Plume turns and calls out. Kids! Eve, a bright pink teen pigeon, wanders out from behind a tree stump, fussing with her feathers. What? <laughs> Are you ready? For what? For the concert. <laughs> I'm not going to the concert, I'm going out. What? <laughs> from behind a nearby rock, Denny, a gray teen pigeon, wanders in, fussing with his feathers. Denny, did you know your sister is not coming to the concert? Yeah, I'm not going either. I'm going out with my friends. My friends, you're just tagging along. Don't get your tail feathers in a bunch. Pepper invited me. You stay away from her. She invited me. Eve turns to Plume to intervene. <laughs> Dad! It doesn't matter. This is one of your mother's favorite things to do this time of year, and we're all going. Well, you said we only had to do one Christmas thing. And this is it. We went to the Christmas tree lighting last week. That's not a Christmas thing. That's a family thing. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> It's not our fault. The family thing is a Christmas thing. Plume holds his wings out in front of him to focus himself. Fine. <laughs> then tonight is a family thing. But we just did a family yeah, thing. Yeah, the Christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> Plume looks to Dubby, who is now standing ready to leave. She shrugs. Plume turns back to the kids. The tree lighting doesn't count. The tree lighting is just what we do. None of us would be here if it wasn't for that tree. Not you, not me. Not your mother. Well, maybe your mother, but not you and me. Oh, what does that even mean? You know, your mother immigrated to New York when she was just a little bird. Well, my side of the family has been here for generations and generations, but we came here once, too. You're... Great, 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 great grandfather Seamus came all the way from his homeland just to see that tree. Dissolve to exterior Rockefeller Center, early evening. We are looking up at a grainy black and white shot of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree with 30 Rockefeller Center looming in the background. The shot transforms from black and white to the look of oversaturated color video as a super on the screen reads, Rockefeller Center, 1980. Interior Rockefeller Christmas tree, early evening. We sink through the brightly lit branches of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. On every branch are perched pigeons, families, couples, individuals, all taking in the beautiful lights. Finally, we land on the face of a deliriously happy pigeon. Isn't it amazing? Behind him, another pigeon glances around as he shakes water off his wings. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not like uh, fly all the way from Stanford amazing, but it's, it's nice. Come on, Seamus. It's New York City. It's Christmas, and this is the most famous Christmas tree in the world. A huge drop of rain plops down right on Seamus' head. He shudders and shakes it off. Rudolph doesn't notice. This is worse than the whale watch you made me go on. Did you see their flukes? <laughs> they blew water up in the air and I got soaked! Those were their blowholes! Come on, let's go home. Rudolph spins. Whoa! We just got here, buddy. I don't mean all the way home, I just mean to bed for a night. It's raining. Are you kidding me? It's New York City! And there's something I need to see while I'm here. Rudolph lifts off and weaves through the branches, disappearing in the wet darkness ahead. I thought we were here to see the tree! 
Seamus huffs and wings off after it. Exterior New York City, evening. Seamus shoots out from the giant pine into Rockefeller Center. As soon as he's out into the open air, the blare of car horns fills the air. Disoriented, Seamus looks around, squinting against the spitting rain. He spots Rudolph swooping down towards a mass of tourists below. Seamus twists his beak and follows. The two birds fly low over the mass of humanity bottleneck trying to get into Rockefeller Center. They turn uptown over the crowds jostling on their way down Fifth Avenue. Rudolph winds nimbly through the crowd, but Seamus flaps behind him in a near panic, swerving to barely miss the umbrellas bumping around him. In the crowd below him, a businessman bumps into a man laden with shopping bags. Watch it, folks. He shoves the businessman, sending his umbrella jutting into the air and smacking Seamus in the face. Seamus careens to the ground. He stands and begins to brush himself off before launching abruptly skyward to avoid being stomped on by a passerby. Seamus gets up above the crowd and flaps for a moment, trying to get his bearings. Off in the distance, he sees... Rudy! Seamus flaps to catch up to his friends as he turns the corner off Fifth Avenue. Around the corner, Seamus finds his friend sitting in a bucket on the ground in front of a hulking horse and carriage. Rudolph turns towards him. Oats! Seamus <laughs> lands in the bucket of oats next to his friend. Rudolph turns to him, oats dripping out of his beak. Delicious. Seamus bends down to peck an oat. As he does, Rudolph suddenly lifts off out of the bucket. Seamus looks up after him. Where are you going? Suddenly, the giant head of a horse dips into the bucket, pushing Seamus under the oats. He comes up sputtering, wet oats spewing from his beak and sticking to him. A gruff man in a top hat strides over the curb and kicks the bucket, rattling Seamus off his feet. Get out, bird. (laughs) Seamus skitters out of the bucket and flaps over to Rudolph, sitting on the sidewalk nearby. Rudolph chortles. That was disgusting. It was. Suddenly, Rudolph stops and puts his wing up to Seamus, staring intently off at something. What? Seamus follows Rudolph's eyes. Across the street, an old man sits at a bus stop, eating a... Ginger snack. (laughs) (laughs) The The two soar across the street, landing a few feet from the man. Rudolph sneakily approaches the bench, positioning himself just under the old man's shaking hand, his beak open and ready to catch falling pieces. Seamus follows, hesitant to get too close. The man takes the last bite of the cookie, then wipes his hands together, sending a cascade of crumbs falling towards the two pigeons. Seamus lunges at one of the falling crumbs, but misses. The crumb hits the sidewalk, bouncing. Rudolph hustles over them and begins gobbling them up. Seamus watches him a moment, his beak open and watering. Seamus's point of view. Tight on the sidewalk, Rudolph's beak snatches up crumbs off the wet, grimy, gray sidewalk. Back to scene. Seamus closes his beak in disgust. You don't want any? It just looks very dirty. <laughs> Above them, the old man stands, tossing his crumpled cookie bag to the ground, hitting Seamus in the head. Rudolph eats up the last of his crumbs. It's getting late. We should... Just uh... one more thing. Rudolph lifts off and begins flying uptown. Seamus begrudgingly follows. Exterior over 6th Avenue, night. Rudolph and Seamus flap uptown. Suddenly, the canyon of buildings opens to reveal an expanse of trees stretching as far as the eye can see. Seamus perks up. Rudolph, look! Trees! Seamus speeds up towards the greenery. Rudolph's eyes go wide, and he flaps furiously to catch up with Seamus. Seamus, no! That's Central Park. You never fly in there at night. (laughs) There are bad birds in there at night. (laughs) Rudolph begins to bank. Follow me. It's a shortcut. Rudolph banks right, heading off up the street as Seamus follows. Insert. A 1980s map of Manhattan. A red dotted line follows the path of the pigeons on the longest possible route to where they're going. (laughs) East down the bottom of the park, north all the way up to the top of the park, west across the top of the park, then south halfway down the length of the park to exterior American Museum of Natural History, night. The two birds crash to the sidewalk next to the park, 
gasping for breath. In between pants, Rudolph looks up. There it is. Seamus looks up to see a large, archaic building looming across the street. It twists and turns in all directions, lights beaming up on all the windows like art on display. Seamus gasps at its beauty. It's a castle. It's a museum of natural history. Rudolph turns to Seamus, his eyes alight. There's a whale inside. <laughs> what do you mean there's a whale? Louise has been inside, and she says it flies in the sky like a bird. Seamus scans the building, taking in the anti-pigeon spikes lining every window. How are we supposed to get in there? It's a fortress, and it's closed. There's got to be a way. Why would there be a way for a bird to get into a museum? Rudolph begins walking towards <laughs> the building. We'll figure it out. I want to go home, Rudy. Rudolph stops and turns to it. Seamus continues. The city is awful. The horses are awful. The crumbs are awful. The people are awful to each other, and everything is a million miles from everything. There is nothing good about this city. Well, then go ahead, Seamus. There's a flying whale in that building, and I'm going to look at it. Rudolph turns and flies up off o over the roof of the museum. We came to see a tree! <laughs> Seamus twists his beak angrily and stomps across the sidewalk. He kicks a balled-up piece of gum into the street. He then looks disgustedly at his foot. Gross. Seamus flops down on the sidewalk, defeated and exhausted. A lone taxicab motors by in the misty rain. Suddenly, something catches his attention off to the left. He peers down the wide streets and sees beautiful lights illuminating the mist, alternating red and blue, lighting up the buildings on one side of the street and the canopy of trees in the park on the other side. He hears, very quietly, something beautiful and melodic he cannot quite make out. He turns towards the museum. Rudy! Hey! Rudy! There's no answer. Seamus turns back towards the light. Then, with a quick look back towards the museum, he takes off and glides down the wide streets towards the beautiful lights. Exterior, Central Park West and 72nd Street, night. Seamus lands gingerly on the street light, arcing over the street. He looks beneath him to see hundreds of New Yorkers in their coats under the light rain, lit by alternately red and blue glow. They all face the building opposite the park, singing softly, half hymn, half prayer, all together. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Seamus' eyes scan the group. They have their arms around each other. Some have their heads on each other's shoulders. Some hold umbrellas over the heads of their neighbors. Others just hold each other. Nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Seamus' eyes turn down towards the end of the street lamp, where he is sitting. There, a beautiful female pigeon watches quietly over the group. Her beak trembles and a tear rolls down it, illuminated in red and blue. The crowd continues to sing softly, almost pleadingly. on Seamus's face, a tear and a gentle smile cross it at the same moment. It would be a few months before great, 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 great Grandpa Seamus would truly fall in love with that beautiful pigeon he saw on that street lamp that night. But that is the night he fell in love with New York, a city that is at its best when it is at its worst. We pull back from behind Seamus, letting in the silhouette of Seamus and the Lady Bird perched on the same branch, framed by flashing blue and red lights. We continue to pull back to let in the crowd of New Yorkers below. Across the street, police cars with the red and blue flashing lights illuminate the front of the Dakota, and the policemen and press go about their business, winding around through yellow police tape. The crowd continues to gently sing. There's nothing you can know that ain't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's nowhere you can be, there's nowhere you're meant to be. It's easy. 
Back to the present. Denny and Eve look up at Plume, their eyes welling up. You never told us that. Plume smiles at him and shakes his head. I guess I'd always just thought our family always been here. Plume smiles down at his children. No. The kids smile up at him for a moment. <laughs> then... Okay, gotta go. Yeah, we're gonna be late. They turn to leave. What about Grandpa Seamus's trees? Yeah, that was last week. We went, and it's going to mean that, we're, and it's going to mean even more next year. Great story, but Pepper said I had a nice beat, Dad. Super great, Grandpa Seamus would totally want me to go for it. <laughs> then he lifts off and heads for the open tile in the ceiling. Eve launches off after it. Don't you go for anything. She's my friend. The two disappear into the ceiling. I can't help it if she likes my beat. And they're gone. <laughs> Plume casts his eyes down, then turns to Dubby. I'm sorry, Dubby. I know how forward you look to this every year. Dubby shrugs. They're getting older. They have their own things. It was a family thing. Have I told you I have a baby next week? Plume smiles at her. Maybe some things can just be in us. Plume nods. Dissolve to exterior strawberry fields, Central Park, late afternoon. A large crowd of people gather in the gentle snow just inside Central Park, clutching their coats tight, surrounding a trio of people with guitars. The trio plays while the crowd sings exuberantly along. Oh, we are saying, it's going to be such a all we are saying is to be such a All we are saying is to be such a The song finishes and the crowd applauds. High above in a street lamp, Plume sits looking over the crowd. He looks down the lamp to see Dubby smiling down in the group, a mirror of the shot of Seamus looking at the beautiful pigeon. 38 years earlier. Below, the guitarist begins to play So This Is Christmas, The War Is Over. We look down in the imagined memorial on the ground and pull up to take in the crowd surrounding it as they sing. So this is Christmas And what have you done? Another year over Pass through the canopy of trees and keep rising higher, letting in the pedestrians with shopping bags in the sidewalks and taxis on the street. And so this is Christmas. I hope you have fun. The in the canopy of trees, dozens of pigeons sit perched swaying along with the music below. We tilt towards the Dakota, across the street, in the window of the southeast penthouse, a Christmas tree grows bright with white Christmas lights. Snow continues to fall, dissolve to black. And that was inspired by 1980s horror film by The Wallows. <laughs> She was only seventeen. Oh, why are girls in songs over seventeen? <laughs> she was from a movie scene. Jenny Curlin. Um, this year, obviously, we got the year 1980. Um, December is the holiday time, and so we were like, what happened in December 1980? <laughs> also, the uh, first line of the song that we just listened to was, she was only 17, why are girls in songs always 17? Which made us think of the Beatles song, I Saw Her Standing There. Uh, which uh, made us think of a shooting. 
and <laughs> patrons. So that's it. That's it. All right. Um. Yeah. So that Yay! is it. Thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday episode. If you would like to get a copy of this year's collection of very short holiday plays, featuring the plays you heard, as well as new plays from Nicholas Chan, Leah Philly, Kit Lavoy, Michael Points, Bell Stockdale, and Zunaris Velasquez, visit www.cryhavoccompany.org gift and gift a piece of Cry Havoc for the holidays. To learn more about Cry Havoc, our upcoming events, and how you can help support the work and the community, please visit www.cryhavoccompany.org. So, for myself, Caitlin Wilcox, Jennifer Reichert, Jersey Gwizdowski, Kaven Hallman, Jenny Curlin, Nicholas Chan, Leah Philly, Michael Points, Bell Stockdale, Zunaris Velasquez, Matt Cowart, Erin Krebs, Jennifer Kerfman, Chris Comfort, John Brunner, Maylisa Briner Sanders, Annalisa Chamberlain, Jerry Tobin, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company. Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe.